I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and recognize their continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to elders past and present. If you look at the big successful companies in the world, they're often being brought up in the US. They've made their way out of the US market and that's because the way people are rewarded for innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit is always alive and well in the US. Hello and welcome to Take Stock, a new podcast by Future Generation. In this series, we get a backstage pass into the minds of leading fund managers and work out how and why they make the stock choices they do. I'm Caroline Gurney, CEO of Future Generation. We're Australia's first listed investment group to deliver both social and investment returns. And that's all thanks to the managers we're going to be talking to. So far, Future Generation has donated more than 75 million to not-for-profits that improve the lives of young Australians. And we can do this because of people like Nikki Thomas and Magellan Financial Group. They charge zero management or performance fees to our shareholders for managing future generations' money. Nick is in the studio today. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks, Carolyn. You have more than 20 years' experience in financial markets and have been recognised for bringing global equities to Australia. So, Nikki, what are the biggest trends that have emerged out of the recent reporting season? Perhaps if we can go through what's happened recently and then we can ask you some more personal questions. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess we're just at the tail end of reporting season. I think if there were topics that continue to be front of mind as companies report, uh, the shift around artificial intelligence and generative AI uh, remains front and centre. And we're seeing some very strong results for the enabling companies, things like Amazon, which was clearly uh, evidenced, even though we're a long way uh, from the kickoff really on this, the commercialization of AI is still sort of well in the future, but we can see it coming. Um, and there was a lot of talk around that. Uh, I guess um, the, the the energy transition and the work that's going on there um, it, it's been interesting to watch. I would say that the piece that jumped out at me this reporting season is one of the things we've been saying to people, and that is that there's going to be large amounts of money that will pursue this, but there won't be good returns for everybody on the back of it. And that's actually become evident in some of the results we've seen. So there's been quite a lot of significant write-downs by companies involved in renewables. Uh, and, you know, there will be um, difficulties as we go through this process. So uh, that's been an interesting piece of the puzzle, I think, as we've gone through reporting season. Uh, and you've seen similar things around electric vehicles, which, um, you know, as uh, the competition heats up. Uh, a lot of the large OEMs are finding it really difficult to compete in that electric vehicle space, which China's done so well. So, you know, not all good news, I guess. Um, weakness in Europe and China has been evident. Uh, and I guess the, the question marks around how big the impact of interest rate increases will have on consumers around the world uh, continue to, uh, I guess, try to be addressed. People are still unclear as to how bad that's going to get, but we're seeing different um, levels of, of pain across markets. You know, this year has been really tough. I mean, we can't hide from that. But what are you what are you looking forward to next year? What's your market outlook? Uh, I always struggle with the market outlook because I don't really think about the whole market, and I I, I can't 
I can't tell you when the market's going to go overall. What we do is think about what the key parameters are and and what we're trying to do always is look within the market to find where the best opportunities are, where we can make great returns for our investors uh, in, in a way that doesn't take too much risk. So we spend a lot of time inside the market looking at where the opportunities are, where things are changing, trying to be live to the data at all times. Uh, I, I think markets are probably going to continue to give us good and bad and we could continue to see volatility as we work through what are very significant transitions ahead of us for the world. So we recently had our Future Generation Summit, which you, which you spoke at, um, and you gave net Netflix as a stock tip. Um, you've, Magellan, you, you've sort of gone hot and cold on this over the sort of the past few years. So I'm really interested in what what is the investment case for Netflix and other streaming models and and I'm interested because I watch so much Netflix and I love it. But, you know, is is it something we should be investing in? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one, Caroline. Um, and you say, you know, we've blown hot and cold. I, I hear you. The reality is the share price has blown pretty hot and cold. So um, first you've got to deal with what is the business. And then you've got to think about what the stock is and what, what you're getting with the stock and where you are in the life cycle of this business. So I think our view on the company hasn't really changed much over the last five years. This is a business that was really early life cycle. It's maturing. Um, and and we have always been very positive on the outlook for streaming and the opportunity ahead of Netflix. And we believe they have a very good management team. If you go back to 2022, you had a stock that was expensive. It didn't have a lot of free cash flow. In fact, it hadn't started to deliver any free cash flow at that point. So the life cycle point at which it was at was still quite early. There was a lot of potential growth ahead, but then they uncovered the issues they had around password sharing. Uh, and they'd always said they weren't going to do an ad-supported streaming model, uh, and then they changed that. So so last year from Netflix was a pretty big year in terms of them having to rethink their strategy and address the issues around how they were going to grow, but grow profitably and deliver cash flows. Um, we'd had the stock in the portfolio. Uh, I'd obviously came back to Magellan at that time. Duration stocks at that point were definitely not the place to be as interest rates rose. So we took it out of the portfolio and said at the time, this is going to continue to be a Magellan stock. We're going to continue to cover it. We think there's about 12 months for them to get this strategy sorted out. They've got a deal with password sharing. They've got a deal with implementing an ad-supported model. So let's watch that and and we'll see where they get to, but let's not bet the house on something that we just don't know quite how it's going to play out. So we have been watching and doing the work and the team have been uh, fantastic in uncovering the data points that we needed to understand. Uh, and we, we put it back into the portfolio more recently. And that's really because we're seeing now that that execution is working, that this is a business that is back, got its mojo. Free cash flow generation has gone from none, literally negative, uh, to the market thought four, uh, we were kind of thinking five or six billion of free cash flow. It's a big turnaround. Uh, they're, they're now guiding to numbers better than that. So so we've seen a really significant shift. And, and I think as we look at it today, you've got a business that is the dominant player and will continue to be probably the leading player in streaming. Streaming will continue to take share of entertainment. So linear TV will continue to lose share to this industry. And then Netflix have the ability to leverage a fixed cost base. So you get double-digit top-line growth 
and you should get massive margin expansion as we go out over the next five or so years. So 20% margins could be 40% margin. So we see a business growing over 20% per annum with a, you know, a positive free cash flow yield. Uh, it looks it looks exactly the sort of business that Magellan should have in its portfolio. So we're pretty super excited about where that'll be. In. Excellent. So if you don't mind, if we can go back to the US, you were you were very optimistic on the US, um, and 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 why why is that? Um, there's something quite special about the US. Australia has a bit of this as well, and that is that um, there's a couple of things that are really obvious when you look at the way the US economy and markets work and that is that it really believes in innovation and entrepreneurship and it it takes a very shareholder friendly approach to uh, capital allocation Uh, and so you often find and if you look at the big successful companies in the world they're often being uh, brought up in the US they've made their way out of the US market and that's because the structures the governance uh, the the way people are rewarded for innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit is always alive and well in the US. So, you know, think about all the big Magnificent Seven. If you think about what's happening around just electric vehicles, for instance, you know, that's been a, vehicles has been an industry genom- dominated by European companies. And yet, where did the company come from that changed everything? The US, Tesla. So, um, I, I just think it's a really phenomenal place for companies uh, to grow and to become, uh, you know, big players on the world stage. Uh, and so it, it kind of falls out of our research, to be honest. We don't look at the US and go, oh, we must find our ideas there. But as we look at the best ideas and the best opportunities for us, and we're always thinking about very high quality companies who are superbly positioned. So we're very, very focused on just a select group of businesses around the world. It's amazing how often they are in the So I, I'd now really like to go back to your portfolio in terms of, you know, what you do. I'm, I'm really interested in terms of how does a stock get into your portfolio? And perhaps you could actually explain the process to us. I've got to be careful not to talk too much when I start to <laughs> um, So I guess the Magellan process starts with thinking about what sort of company makes sense for our style of investing. Uh, and that is where... And what's your style of investing? So we're very much around high quality, concentrated businesses that we believe will compound returns for the long term. So we're looking for an absolute return focus. We're not trying to just beat markets. And and indeed, we will wear underperformance relative to the market if we're convicted that the businesses that we're in ultimately will will pay off. So looking at a relative performance number is something that is uh, deeply ingrained in most portfolio managers, but it's a bit of an anathema to the Magellan process. Uh, And so we have to be very um, conscious of that. We are very much focused on those absolute returns out of high quality, sustainably advantaged businesses. It, It goes to risk. If you buy those sorts of companies, you're actually always taking a lot le- less risk. And our mindset is this is this is money that is real people's savings and we want to protect that money. And so taking less risk while delivering them compound returns that are going to create wealth for us is, is just the right way to go about it. Um, so when I think about how does a stock get in the Magellan portfolio, firstly, we only select from a select group of companies. 
we cover the ones that jump out at us as having competitive advantages. And that ultimately lands in an investable universe. It's only about 200 stocks, not the 1,650 that are out there. So we've really tightly defined what it is we think is investable. And then it's about portfolio construction. It's about risk. It's about vectors of growth opportunity. It's about not paying too much for stocks. And so all of these pieces uh, have to be brought together to build a portfolio that, again, doesn't lean too heavily on just one thing to deliver the returns. We're thinking about portfolio effects, in other words, diversification, but not diversification. <laughs> That's always good to grow buffers. Um, Nikki, there's an art to portfolio construction. I mean, I, I think it's incredibly complicated and to do it well you know, is something that we need our fund managers to do. Tell me about how you do it. I think the thing I always say to the team is let's stay live to the data. So we're always testing ourselves with things we own and then also things that we're looking at that maybe we're thinking about owning. And we're thinking about what's going to happen in the future. So ultimately, that's what investing is, predicting the future. And we're trying to work out how we can extract a better than 10% return over the next three years in a way that doesn't take too much risk and is balanced in terms of portfolio construction. And so the stock ideas, there's sometimes businesses out there, stocks out there that we can see handsome returns in, but we won't own them. And it's because they don't make sense in the portfolio. They don't add something to the portfolio. So you, you don't have to have, or you you have to avoid FOMO. You can't wish you could own all of these things because we, we won't. We will have a concentrated portfolio. Um, similarly, you may have a stock that you had a real belief around the investment case and the data challenges, the facts emerge that make your investment thesis look incorrect. Um, you'll never know if it was incorrect until time goes by, but you have to ultimately make decisions. And I think that is the bit that people often misunderstand with portfolio management. There's lots and lots of analysis and the team are obviously really important in us doing that analysis well. But the role of the portfolio manager is to make decisions and decision-making takes courage. And you have to just back your view sometimes and believe that this is going to work. And all of the data and all of the science and all of the analysis cannot tell you absolutely what the future looks like. So that's where you have to keep thinking about the balance of risks. So I, I, like, I like the question in terms of, you know, obviously it's incredibly data-driven. Um, is it is it art or science? It's definitely both. Um, there's a piece of this that we will look for data points. We will look for trend analysis. It's the piece that analysts lean on most across the world, and it's why COVID made things so challenging for investors. When trends get broken so dramatically by something like a pandemic, it makes it really hard to understand where you're going to end up on the other side of that. So trend analysis and thus data analysis, the analytics of how things are changing in industries, uh, trying to piece together all of the jigsaw pieces uh, to give you a picture of what the future looks like is a really important part of what we do. And there is a level of science there. There's a level of uh, quantifying the, the trends and the data points that we can gather. But ultimately, there's if it was just science, none of us would exist. There would be no uh, ability to do things differently to or, or to add value because the data would just make it all work. So that's, I guess, the piece where the art comes in. And part of that is around portfolio construction, in my view. It's about putting together a portfolio that 
works as a portfolio and isn't just a I use the term a punter's club. You know, we're not just picking a few stocks and throwing them out there. We're thinking about portfolio effect. I suppose I, I I sort of listen to how people construct their portfolio, and it's actually incredibly difficult, isn't it? Like, I mean, I, I talk to a number of fund managers, and I think you know the amount of work that must go into that construction is is you know it is amazing, really, because you've got to. You've got to look at the universe of stocks and you've got to work out exactly what's going to work together. Is that often gut instinct as well or is that purely sort of data-driven? Um, if gut instinct is experience, then I'd say yes, there's an element of that. And you lean on your experience. You also lean on other people's experience. So you, I read, and anybody who, who manages money, I think, reads prolifically. Uh, because you want to find all of the pieces that you can that will help you make the right decision. So, um, and sometimes they're journalists, you know, it might be the Financial Times that has an interesting piece that you think, oh, that's changed my view on something. Well, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, I obviously use an enormous amount, as do most people who do this. Um, but then it's it's people who work in markets, it's uh, salespeople and researchers at broking houses. Um, it, it can be podcasts that I listen to, and literally what podcasts do you listen to besides ours? Obviously, uh, there's a couple. Well, I can just talk to one I was listening to yesterday, which is left of centre, but it's the Paul Taylor podcast. It's actually about he's a psychologist, psychiatrist kind of fellow, so it's a, it's often around health and science around that stuff. Uh, but it but it's just brings a different perspective around things. Um, he was talking about neuroscience with someone yesterday that I was listening to. Uh, I like the All In podcast. Um, so that's venture capitalists. Uh, they're hilarious. They swear a bit. Um, they talk too much. But they bring perspectives that I don't get in the market. So I, it is about finding different places to get perspectives. Um, you know, we will we will talk to independent experts who worked in industries. We will talk to um, people who are experts on macroeconomics. As you know, we have advisors who are ex-CIA uh, so they bring us an incredibly useful lens around what goes on in Washington and uh, thinking by the US around geopolitical events. Uh, Actually, I listened to one that was very good the other day that you put forward in terms of what was happening in the Middle East. It was it was really fascinating to get that. Um, that's why I do this job, because it's always fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm going to take us back to some of my list of questions. Um. I'm interested in what was the first stock pick that you ever made and um, where is it now? So I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I actually thought about it. So I can't tell you what my first stock pick was when I was an Aussie stockbroker because I, it's just, I can't remember. But I can remember my first stock pick when I started covering global equities. And so that was at Magellan. Uh, we put the stock into the global portfolio when we launched the fund in July of 2007. Uh, the company's name is Young Brands, so anybody who's been following Magellan knows Young Brands. It is still in the portfolio. Um, I did a bit of digging because I had no idea, but uh, it, at the time we put it in, the stock was trading at the equivalent today of around $15. So there's been stock splits and so forth across the last 15 years. So the $15 has turned into about $125. So it's up about eightfold. Pretty good. <laughs> so what... So I suppose the question, you know, what what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Mind you, with that stock pick, that was, yeah, 
that was pretty good. It, it jumped off the page at me, to be honest, after having covered Australian equities as a, a broker mostly for a long period of time. And I started looking at international companies and some of these phenomenal US-based companies. Um, I, I, I felt like I'd been missing something really important when I started looking because I found these incredible companies that you, you, that just have global scale that you don't get in Australia. Um, what do I wish I knew then that I know now? I wish I'd known how much Australian property was going to rock us in value. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a good point. Definitely. So maybe we should go to like, what, what do you see that investors get wrong? Like we speak to a lot of, you know, a lot of retail investors and, um, I'm just really interested in what you see that they might be getting wrong or what do they get right? Yeah, I think, look, I think people always do their best when they're trying to manage money and some people are obviously managing their own money and um, and, and they want to look after it. Uh, I think there's a couple of things I'd say that are, are areas to be cautious if you're trying to do this for yourself. Um, one is to truly understand risk. And I think it's hard to truly understand risk if you're doing this as not your main game. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a part-time gig ultimately for people who are just trying to manage their own money. Um, the other thing that I think is really hard to, to deal with is that uh, with, with shares, you get to see stock prices every single day. So if you're investing in property, you don't get to see the price every day. You can, you sort of know, what a house is worth and it's it feels like it'll be the same in six months um or maybe you think it's going to go up in six months but you know it's not it's not something that's literally visible to you every single day and I think the hardest thing for investors who aren't professionals and are doing this as something they're trying to learn how to do is that they think share prices are giving them real information all it is giving you is the price opportunity it's not tell so when share prices fall 10 or rise 10 percent and they do that a lot these days, that may not be conveying anything material in terms of the underlying intrinsic value of that business. And so it's really hard to separate those two. So I think people, and it's really hard to fight that bias to be, ah, the market's, you know, the stock's fallen 10%, ah, things are broken, uh, or it's risen 10%, I knew I was right. You know, uh, it's a it's a really difficult um, piece of the puzzle in uh, not stepping away from share prices. And when we started Magellan, we gave nobody in the investment team, so none of us had access to share prices. You could go and find it somewhere, but you didn't. Most people start with a Bloomberg terminal and the prices are visible in front of you every day. Uh, but we did that on purpose. The analysts were not given that because we weren't asking them to decide about a share price. We are asking them to build a, a understanding of a company and decide what that company was worth. And looking at daily share prices wasn't going to help them do that well. And so I think that is often the hardest thing for people uh, who are learning this game to step away from the noise of market. And they certainly are noisy, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, what? I mean, obviously, since you rejoined Magellan, you know, what have you done differently with your fund? I think the first thing we did, we haven't done a lot differently to be. To be clear, I, you genuinely, the process that Magellan put in place back in 2007, which I was part of building, is still there, tried and true, and still doing what it what it should be doing. 
Uh, but we did, you know, Chris and I both came back. We both looked at the portfolio and we looked at areas where we were uncomfortable with the positioning based on the macro environment that we were facing into, which was one of clearly rising interest rates. And of course, they're not all kicked off. Uh, and so we repositioned. And one of the things, and, and Chris was very much uh, of the same view, China was risky. Uh, and these companies, so Alibaba in particular was one that was in the portfolio still, truly looked undervalued, still looks undervalued. Um, it wasn't going to be a business that we felt the risk profile was right. And it was uh, one of those tough decisions that needed to be made. So stepping away from the China story that had been a wonderful tailwind for Magellan's portfolio for years and accepting that the China situation had changed and that we just needed to accept that it was time to move on uh, was a really important piece, I think, for us to get out of the way of the noise of what was going on there and uh, re-establish some trust, I guess, in terms of investors who were hurting. You know, the portfolio performance hadn't been terrible, but the relative performance had been. And so uh, people were losing confidence that the process was working. So there were a few changes like that. Taking some of these long duration stocks out of the portfolio, um, not because the businesses were broken, but because they were going to be selling into a big headwind of a derating market. Uh, you know, they were decisions that just need to be made at the time. So they, to be honest, it's probably really, it was really about just repositioning the portfolio, changing the way we invest didn't happen. Um, so that that was really more about but I would say we did do probably. And you're still you're still not into China at all, are you? No. No, look, I think there's always money to be made, even in a market like China. So absolutely I, I'm not critical of people who who get inside of the Chinese market and, and can find opportunities there. Um and you know, I wish them well. I look at the issues, the macro issues that I think China have ahead of them, the liquidity uh it looks like a liquidity trap, but the lack of confidence around consumers, uh, the deterioration in the real estate market, uh, the lack of fiscal multiplier for spending by the government, I find it very hard to have conviction about the longer term opportunity of buying into that China story. So I think there will, there will be people who will make money, um, but I, I just, we have 30 stocks or less in our portfolio. There's just better, easier ways to make money for our for our investors. I, I love how passionate you are about investing in your portfolio. Well we we are we are very grateful that you you manage our, our money, our shareholder money. And what why do you do it? Why 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 do you invest our shareholder money? Uh I guess I always feel like a bit of a girl when I say this stuff, but I genuinely care about the people on the other side. So I do this because I want people's hard-earned savings to turn into a pot of gold. I want to help people um, make money by investing. And so I genuinely do it because I want a great outcome. There's two sets of people I care about most in this process and why I'm at Magellan. One is the people that work at Magellan and, you know, I want to help them. I want to help this business grow and get back to the, the great business that it was. And the other piece is the investors on the other side of that, you know, the people who've trusted us with their savings, uh, I absolutely want them to be justified in that trust and to give them a great outcome. So that's why I go to work. Oh, I mean, well, thank you. I mean, I, I love I love the future generation model because, you know, you're giving hope to our future generations. 
but also you're making sure that people have a healthy retirement and they have a good savings pool. So it's it's really important that we have fund managers like you to manage our money. So thank you. I've really enjoyed this chat. Thank you very much for your time. And I'm, I look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks, Carolyn. It's lovely to be here. And it is always lovely to be involved in a, a project like Future Generation. You know, what you do, I think... Uh, and the ability for us to have contributed to the outcomes that Future Generation have had uh, has been really rewarding. Please join the Future Generation family, Australia's first listed investment companies to provide investment and social returns. We have given more than $75 million to Australian not-for-profit organisation, something we and our shareholders are incredibly proud of. Be part of this and gain investment returns while contributing to improving the lives of young Australians. For more information, about Future Generation, visit the website www.futuregeninvest.com.au. Thank you.